Well, please join me at the end of Joshua chapter 8. That's where we'll be today. It's the last six verses, verse 30 to 35. And not only are we at the end of Joshua chapter 8, but Joshua 8 is the end of the first section of the book of Joshua. So if you can imagine the building blocks, you got the bigger one at the bottom, a little bit smaller above it, and the final one on top of that. Joshua has three parts. It's chapters 1 to 8, chapters 9 to 12, chapters 13 to the end. The bottom is the biggest in that mental image because it's the foundation of everything else. At the end of Joshua chapter 8, there's a focus on God's word, the book of the law. That's actually the way that first part also begins. Joshua chapter 1, Joshua opens with a focus on the book of the law of Moses. The end of the first part of Joshua, Joshua 8, ends with a focus on the book of the law of Moses. That's the foundation, the, the deep pillars of what God's saying in the book of Joshua rest on God and his word. But that first part, chapters 1 to 8, which we'll finish today, is so symmetrical. I mean, God's word is not haphazard. I, I confess to you, many times... You know, especially when I've taken the lucky dip method of Bible reading, and then the next day, you know, it's hard to see how it all fits together. And even when I've been a little more conscientious than the lucky dip method, it's wherever my finger falls that day, it's still hard to see how it fits together. The outline we gave to the church months ago for the book of Joshua to try to acquaint you with how it's set up, never ceases to fascinate me. Joshua's not haphazard. This first part not only begins, one and eight, and ends with a focus on the book of the law, but chapter two is encouragement from a believing Canaanite, Rahab. Chapter seven is discouragement from an unbelieving Israelite, Achan. Chapter 3, the Jordan River stands up. Chapter 6, the Jericho Wall falls down. Right in the middle, Israel worships God in the promised land. It's bracketed by a focus on God's law. It's so symmetrical. Same is true with the second part and the third part, which we'll see hopefully in the weeks to come. Today's sermon title is The Book of the Law. The primary focus of today's sermon is this. If I could put it into one little tight package, I would say it maybe several ways. Here's a way. The Christ-centered word of God is to shape the lives of his people. It's the simplest way I can put it. Let your eyes fall on verse 30, Joshua chapter 8. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Hear the word of the living God. Joshua 8 verse 30. Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Verse 32, he wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. All Israel with their elders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native. Half of them stood on Mount, uh, pardon me, in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel, 34, then afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. This is God's word. Would you join me in God's presence? We ask him again to help us worship him according to this passage. Father, you're the one who wrote these words. You're the God that 
Israel on top of Mount Ebal was making sacrifices to, whose word they were listening to and obeying. Lord, we want to be like them in this passage. We are like them in our need for a sacrifice. We are like them in our disobedience to your word. We want to be like them in obedience, but we thank you for the one who never failed to obey. We thank you for the one who's the ultimate sacrifice, who's the subject of all your word written and who is your word incarnate, Jesus, the Lord, the King. We pray, Lord, that more than anything, as we walk through this passage today, we would see and run to Jesus, that we would rest in him, that we would be filled with him. Bless us to that end, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I read the passage, you may have been able to point out several things that happened. There are five actions in the six verses, and we're just going to build the sermon around them. In verse 30, Joshua builds an altar. That'll be point one. Verse 31, the people offer burnt offerings. That's number two. In verse 31, they offer fellowship or peace offerings. That's three actions. The fourth action is in verse 32. Joshua writes the words of the law on these big stone pillars. And then finally, the fifth action, verses 34 and 35, Joshua reads all the words of the law before all the people. That's our five points. Let's just look at them carefully together. Verse 30.1, Joshua builds an altar. Right there in verse 30, it says, then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel in Mount Ebal. Now, for those who hadn't been around for our series, or maybe you were and you're like me and you forgot what you had for breakfast, let alone what we looked at last Sunday, the passage immediately prior to our sermon text speaks of the Israelites obliterating the city of Ai. Look at verse 28 of chapter 8. Joshua burned Ai, made it a heap forever, a desolation until this day. Verse 29, he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua gave command and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the city gate and raised over a great heap of stones that stands to this day. Next verse. And Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel at Mount Ebal. Pretty sharp transition. Immediately after the destruction of Ai, which you know didn't go so well the first time because of the sin of Achan, immediately after Achan and his household are dealt with, final judgment by God, whole family stoned, killed, Israel then empowered through a shrewd military tactic, really a smokescreen effort that led to the victory We transition from the defeat of Ai to our passage and we read of this heap of stones at the end of chapter 8 over the king of Ai and then verse 30, a new heap of stones. It's a new altar, uncut stones. Here's just what I want to draw out about this sharp transition from war to worship. From Israel at war at Ai to worship 20 miles north, Mount Ebal, This has led some people to, you know, you're reading the Bible honestly, you start asking questions. I mean, if your Bible doesn't mess with you, read it more carefully. This passage had led some to suppose that it was maybe an accurate representation of a historical event, worship at Ebal, but it's just inserted in the wrong place in Joshua. There are some manuscripts that have it in different spots. This passage is there, it's just in a different spot in in some, like the Qumran scrolls and stuff like that. But as I tried to show right at the beginning, the outline of the book of Joshua is so symmetrical that the overwhelming, compelling argument for its insertion at this point fits not only the structure, but actually the purpose of the whole book. The author indicates that the first thing Joshua did after victory at Ai was set up an altar to the Lord verse 30, built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel. Why did he do that? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons, but the number one reason is not only because he's a godly man. He is. Joshua is one of the few Old Testament characters that you don't read a lot of sketchy past. 
But that's not the main reason he does it. We won a war, thank you God, let's all worship Jesus. He is a godly man, but that's not the main reason. Rather, the reason he does it is because he's a Bible man. You see, you gotta know more than the book of Joshua to know why Joshua led Israel to do a lot of the things that Joshua leads them to do, including building this altar in this place at this time. Just like we looked at when Joshua crossed the Jordan River and all Israel crossed, Joshua's this mighty military commander, and we said then he had a pretty bad military strategy. What's the first thing Joshua did under God's leadership when Israel crossed the Jordan River? He hamstrung his army. He made all the men incapable of fighting. He circumcised them. Well, here's another pretty poor military strategy. Win a battle, take everybody up between two mountains, and hold a church service. Pretty bad military strategy when the rest of the book tells us there's still 31 kings in the land who were making a conspiracy together to fight Israel. I tell you what, we're surrounded. Let's just go over here and have a church service. Bad military strategy. But you see, this worship service was not a random idea at a random place at a random time. It was directly in accord with God's word. Before Israel ever left the wilderness and crossed into the promised land, God said to them, Deuteronomy 27 verse 4, when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal these stones as I am commanding you. You shall coat them with lime. You shall build an altar there to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not wield an iron tool on them. That's why Joshua was doing this. As soon as they entered the promised land, Joshua had one primary assignment on his mind from the Lord. And the primary thing on his mind was not conquering enemy armies. That was a big part of coming into the promised land. But the biggest thing was how quickly can we get to Mount Ebal so we can offer to God the sacrifice he commanded, the one true God who already promised that the victory was won before Israel even fought one battle in the land. This worship service indicates something massively significant to us about Joshua and Israel, and it should apply to us directly without me even having to say it explicitly. This worship service indicates that their trust was in the Lord, not in their own might. So the first thing they do is they set up an altar as soon as they can get to Mount Ebal. They were on a mission to go there. So first is this altar, that's the action the second thing is what they do with it. There's two types of sacrifices. You may see it in verse 31. At the end, they offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. Let's just take them one at a time. They're on Mount Ebal. They build an altar down in the valley between Ebal and Gerizim. There's a little city, some size of a city, Shechem. Joshua never tells us, we're never told in Joshua that Shechem was conquered. Maybe they fought there, maybe they didn't. We do know some things about Shechem. It shows up at the end of the book where Israel renews their covenant with God. It shows up in Genesis where Abraham goes there and builds an altar to worship God. It shows up in Jacob's life where he purchases land and sets up his tent. This is a city that represents something about the God of the universe being faithful to his people. So there's Ebal, there's Gerizim, there's Shechem. What do they do at this altar? First I said they offer burnt offerings, verse 31. But look at the altar. Is it smooth, polished? They put all the big rocks in a rock tumbler? No, uncut stones. And we say around here, uh, phrases like this often, God's not trying to make his book longer. He's not putting in unnecessary information. Why, do, why are we told uncut stones? Well, as I read from Deuteronomy, that's how God commanded the altar to be built. 
Exodus 29, Leviticus 1, tells us that this altar was to have a sacrifice of an aroma pleasing to the Lord. And burnt offerings were a particular type of sacrifice. What type of sacrifice? They were for the sins of the people. That's what a burnt offering is for if you go back and read Exodus and Leviticus. The fact that these offerings were made indicates, David Howard said, that the function of the altar at Mount Ebal was to atone for the sins of the nation. Yeah, Israel just won a battle at Ai, but they didn't forget that they were contaminated by the sin that had entered the camp and they needed to renew their covenant together corporately They needed to acknowledge their sinfulness before God and have a sacrifice that would satiate his wrath. We know from Deuteronomy 27 that Israel is commanded to build not just an altar, but an altar at Ebal and an altar of uncut stones. Exodus 20 says this altar of uncut stones was to be set up at Mount Ebal. Exodus 20 verse 25, if you make an altar of stone for me, You shall not build it of cut stones or wield a tool on it. Why? Brace yourself. There's a very important reason why it needs to be uncut stones. Exodus 20, verse 25, lest you profane it. Don't you contaminate it. Don't put your hand on the altar. Just put the rock there. Don't fix it. Don't pretty it up. Don't try to make it any better. I think this command for God, of God for this altar to be of uncut stones shows us that we don't bring anything to the sacrifice that satiates God's wrath. We don't add anything to the altar that procures his forgiveness except for the sin which makes it necessary. Every effort we try to help God in accomplishing to forgive us only worsens our damnable predicament. The altar is not to be prettied up by what we can contrive. The point of the appearance of the altar as not very impressive is that we need God to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. The point is this, when we've broken covenant with God, we have to return to the place according to God's standard where God accepts the sacrifice for our forgiveness. I don't know what kind of burdens of sin have come into this assembly today. I know those who come to Grace Church often or from time to time have seen the slide that says we're going to take the Lord's Supper and it includes an invitation from God. We didn't, it's not our table, it's Jesus's table and we believe Jesus's invitation is forsaking all known sin. Sometimes that can become white noise It shouldn't because 1 Corinthians 11 says it's really serious that we not take unworthily. Well, we're not worthy in ourselves, but Jesus is worthy. I don't know what kind of sins have come into this assembly today, but I'm so thankful to be able to herald to you on the authority of God's word, no matter what you've done to break covenant with God, no matter what sin you may have brought in with you and still is in your heart right now that you've not yet confessed to him and run to the cross of Christ, there is more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in you. There's forgiveness for you in the blood of Christ, but you have to come to God's altar, God's terms, God's way, God's sacrifice. Don't help him. Run to him and rest in him. So this burnt offering sacrifice on this altar. The third action is fellowship offering. Your, your translation in verse 31 may say like mine, peace offerings. So they're different, right? There's a burnt offering, that's for your sin. What's the fellowship offering for? What's the peace offering for? Well, this is a joyful offering. We're told about it in Leviticus 3, Leviticus 7. Unlike the burnt offering, Portions of the peace offering were offered to the Lord, and the other portion was to be enjoyed by the people who made the offering. It also had a two-dimensional application. The burnt offering is totally vertical. God, we have sinned. Please forgive us. The peace offering is both vertical and horizontal. We want to be right with you, but we also want to be right with our fellow man. This table, the Lord's Supper, represents that. 
One commentator said the fellowship offering was pointing toward restored fellowship with God and with his people. We will live together in light of God's grace. So symbolic of the gospel of Christ. Anybody who comes to God through the cross of Jesus will find for sure, as I tried to say a moment ago, the burden of your sin will be rolled away. But you also get the barrier between you and fellow Christians dissolved. Those walls fall down. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of that in the new covenant. Why don't we take the Lord's Supper privately? I don't think we should, according to the New Testament pattern, but why not? Because it's not private, you and God. It's very interpersonal. Communion with God and communion with his people. This meal says, Jesus has made us right with the Lord. Jesus has made us right with each other. If we have him in common, we have everything in common. So the burnt offering, the fellowship offering. Now before we leave those two offerings, we got an altar and we got two, two kinds of sacrifices. It's on Mount Ebal, Ebal. Before we leave that, I want you to try to envision it as best you can in just a moment. How much blood? Can, can you picture all these animal sacrifices? The hundreds and thousands of carcasses that were consumed by the fire and the burnt offering, the blood that just runs down the face of Mount Ebal. This is a very bloody moment. Then verse 32, the fourth action, Joshua writes the words of the law on the stones. Look at verse 32. He wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. Can you picture that verse? Don't just picture it. Let me, let me help you to picture it. Consider you doing it. In fact, consider doing it. The meticulous process of becoming the scribe of the words of God, writing out the verses of the law of God in your own hand. How much did Joshua write on the stones? We know from Deuteronomy, these are not the altar stones. These are separate stones. They're set up. They're covered in lime. And Joshua, there he is, etching, writing, inscribing on them. Was it the whole Mosaic law? How long would that take? Some say maybe it was Deuteronomy 5 through the end, all the sections of blessing and curses. Some suggest maybe it was all the commands that are written in the section of the Mosaic law. Some suggest maybe it was just the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, like Moses coming down from Sinai. We don't know exactly how much Moses wrote, uh, pardon me, Joshua wrote on these stones. It does appear from the reading of the law in the latter part of this passage, it might have been the whole thing. But me telling you to consider writing out all of the law in your own hand, that's not the primary application. Just like we said, or I meant to say a few weeks ago, we have property a block away from here. It's got a dilapidated building on it we need to tear down. I don't think the application of Jericho's walls falling is we need to leave here today and go march around it seven times and see if it'll fall down. The application of this is not go home and write out the law. It, it certainly wouldn't hurt. The command was not only to write it. The reason for Joshua writing it is so that Israel would obey it. That's why it had to be written. Ebal is one of the highest points in all of Israel. And it's like God putting a billboard up in the promised land saying, I'm God, obey me. A copy of the law of Moses was commanded to be written when Israel got to Ebal, listen to Deuteronomy 27, verse 1. Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people saying, keep all the commandments which I'm commanding you today. It shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall set up for yourselves large stones and coat them with lime. I read that. 
and write on them all the words of this law. That's why Joshua was doing it. He knew God had commanded it. Joshua was obeying the words of God through Moses when he painstakingly, probably with a lot of people surrounding him, friends looking over his shoulder, did I get it right? Make sure I get it down to the letter, down to the accent mark in the Hebrew. No plural where God said singular, no singular where God said plural. Make sure I get it right. And Joshua is writing out the law. He's also functioning in a kingly role. I don't know if you've thought about this, but God commanded, Joshua's not a king, but he's acting very kingly in his role. Joshua commanded that every single king in Israel, Deuteronomy 17, 18, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of the law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. If you want to be leading God's people, you have to know God's words. Why, did, why do you suppose God wanted Israel's leader to write out all the words of his law when they came into the land? You know why. And you know that we live in a Bible-inoculated world, but we live in a Bible-illiterate world. Why does God want his word to be the dominating voice among his people? You know why. He doesn't want us to forget his commands. And he also puts them on a placard for the whole country to see because he doesn't want anybody to act like they have an excuse for not obeying what he said. We're all without excuse. Most of Israel was probably illiterate. They didn't go to school every day and learn to read and write. Most of them received God's words through oral tradition. It was passed down faithfully. Yes, there were scribes who wrote the law and copied it meticulously and perfectly and checked each other's work by the original copy. But this monument was a bold testimony to Israel from God through the hand of Joshua. You must know God's law and you must obey it. These are not suggestions, these are commands. We must be people of the book. And I just wanna ask you before we move to the fifth and final action in the passage, how is your relationship with the book? I mean, more to be desired than gold even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the dripping of the honeycomb. Jeremiah would say, when I found your words, I ate them because they are a joy and a delight to my heart. How's your relationship with God's word? Oh, how I love your testimony. It is my instruction all the day long. The Lord Jesus, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I don't know what your relationship is like with God's word. I do know that it is your life. Without it, we're all wandering aimlessly, chaff tossed around like the wind, no firm roots, no rock, no foundation, nothing solid to stand on. We must have God's word in our life. Israel got it corporately in his presence together. They held each other accountable to his word, which God put as a signpost on top of Mount Ebal. I don't know what your relationship is like with God's word, but I do want you to think for just a minute what it would be like if you did not have it. There are two billion people alive today that don't have a Bible, never heard about Jesus, don't know the gospel, Praise God for all the amazingly smart people who are dedicating their life to studying biblical languages and spoken languages and creating alphabets and translating scriptures into other tongues. Praise God for them. May God bless, help, encourage, and multiply them. But what would it be like if you didn't have his word? You know what God said it would be like? It would be the worst possible judgment he could ever give you. Amos chapter eight, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread, 
not a thirst for water, but for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea, from north to east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. God's blessing his people. Do you remember it was a land flowing with milk and honey? The sweetest nectar Israel ever got did not come from bees in the mountainside at a honeycomb. It came from stones on top of Mount Ebal where the words of God became the nutrient for his people. The final action at this bloody altar site And these big stones with the law written on it for everybody to see is in verses 33 to 35. The final action is Joshua gets to story time. He starts reading. What does he read? All the words of the law. Before whom does he read them? All the people. Look at verse 33. See these people, all Israel, with their elders and officers, And their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The stranger as well as the native, half of them on Gerizim, half of them on Ebal, just like Moses had said. Skip down to verse 35. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. Now, I know, and rightfully so, I've been accused of some long sermons. I got nothing on Joshua. Nothing. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul when he's preaching and poor Eutychus gets so tired he falls out the window because Paul went all day and all night in his sermon. It reminds me when Paul's under house arrest in Acts 28, he's about to have his head chopped off for preaching the gospel of Christ and Rome said no more of that. So what does he do when he's under house arrest? Acts 28, 23, he invites people to his house to do what? From morning until evening, he tried to persuade them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the Psalms. It's a long day. Reminds me of Nehemiah chapter 8. As rebellious Israel had been taken away into captivity because they didn't obey the placard on Ebal. And when they disobeyed in the land, they were eventually taken away into captivity. And when they come back, God's grace and mercy. Nehemiah chapter 8 tells us what they did. All the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of the men, women, children, all who could listen and understand on the first day of the seventh month, he read from it from the square, which is in front of the water gate, from morning until midday in the presence of the women and those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra and the scribe, pardon me, Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which he had made for that purpose. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. When he opened it, all the people stood up and Ezra blessed the Lord. The great God and all the people answered, amen, amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place and they read from the book, from the law of God, translating it to give the sense so that everybody could understand the reading. So Ezra gets to preaching it, Joshua's just reading it. Can you picture verse 33? Can you feel the reverberation in your chest as you're standing on the side of one of these mountains? Six tribes opposite you, five tribes surrounding you and your tribe, thousands of people in unison. Can you feel, verse 33, a resounding amen, Deuteronomy says in chapter 17, I believe. I forgot my reference now. Every time that Joshua said a blessing, Gerizim said, 
amen. Every time Joshua said a curse, Ebal said amen. Thousands of people, your chest reverberating as you hear the sound crescendo over you and cascade through the valley, up through your bones it feels like. Moses had already said, when you get to Ebal and you make that sacrifice and you write out the law and Joshua starts reading it, Six of you tribes go this way, Mount Gerizim. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. Six of you go to Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Nephtali. Six tribes here, six tribes here. Gerizim is all the blessings, amen, amen, amen. Ebal is all the curses, amen, amen. I hope you can feel it. Now can you see it? Who do you see? Down in the valley, you got a box. It's the Ark of the Covenant. It's the presence of God. It's surrounded by the Levitical priest and the elders. Do you see it down in the valley? Now, can you see on the hill opposite you, elders, officers, judges, Levitical priests, strangers, natives, women, little one, all the strangers who are living among them. That's the people that we got in this passage. Hear it, feel it, see it. This lets us know something vitally important about all the conquest passages we read in Joshua. As we progress through this book, we read some hard verses. We've already come across this one. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Annihilation, that's what verse verse 21 in chapter six sounds like, but in the same book, we read verses like this one strangers and natives who were living among them. So which is it? Did they kill them all or did they spare some? Was Israel guilty of genocide? Should we employ the same tactic today? No, we tried to answer some of those questions in Joshua 6 a few weeks ago. Was this conquest narrative in Joshua tantamount to ethnic cleansing? No, no. We can deduce that from the many passages that speak of the natives in the land, And the strangers who accompany Israel, all the way to the end of Joshua, there's still Canaanites among Israel. There's whole cities like Hebron that don't get destroyed. Long before Israel entered Canaan by passing across the Jordan riverbed, long before any of that, in fact, long before they even crossed the Red Sea and left Egypt, God said this, all the circumcised strangers, Exodus 12, 43, All the circumcised strangers get to do something with you, Israel. What do they get to do? Exodus 20, verse 10, partake in the Passover and the Sabbath. What else do they get to do? Book of Deuteronomy, chapter 16, all the strangers and aliens get to take part in the Feast of Weeks. Deuteronomy 16, 13, the celebration of the first fruits. Deuteronomy 26, 10, all the sacrificial celebrations. What what does this tell us, all these strangers who got to participate in worship at Mount Ebal and Gerizim? Benefit from the sacrifices. Say amen to the blessings and the curses. It means a bunch of the Canaanites were true converts like Rahab to Israel's God. Israel was not a closed faith system. You don't have to be born into it or else. In fact, many who were born into it died in the wilderness because Hebrews says they did not believe. It's always been a faith open to outsiders because the God who is has always been on mission pursuing people and saving them for his own glory. One commentator said, in the case of the aliens, Israel was to treat those within its own borders in such a way that they would be desirous of entering fully into a relationship with Israel's God. There is no validity to the old tired argument that the God of the Old Testament wanted to wipe everybody out and the God of the New Testament wants to save everybody. It's simply not true. The one true God who is has always been on mission, calling people from the far ends of the earth to know and follow him as his obedient subjects on his terms. Now, I don't know if you can feel the tension, but this is where we'll close. I want you to feel the reverberation. 
thousands of people shouting amen in unison to the blessings and curses. I want you to see the blood and the sacrifice and look down there in the valley of Shechem and the Ark of the Covenant and the Levites. But now as we close, I want you to feel the tension between these two mountains. Ebal curses, Gerizim blessings. You should feel some tension. As that noise crescendos and cascades as Joshua reads the law, the people consider what it means to be under God's blessing, but they reckon with the reality that they're guilty of everything that should incur the curses. They're not sinless, they're not perfect, they haven't obeyed. We consider the New Testament description of the cross of Christ. I don't know if you can look over Mount Ebal and Gerizim, but you're in Israel. Can you see off in the distance as you're in e- on Ebal, one of the highest mountains in Israel? Can you see way over there in the distance the silhouette of another mountain? Mount Golgotha, Calvary. Nobody's on top of that mountain writing out the law. The man on the top of that mountain is the embodiment of it. The one who kept it perfectly. He's climbing up that mountain, not with a sacrifice, but to be the sacrifice. And I don't know if you caught it, but the altar was built on one mountain in Joshua 8, not both mountains. It wasn't on the mountain of blessing, it was on the mountain of cursing. It was on Ebal, not on Gerizim. And you get to the New Testament, And if this doesn't cause your heart to skip a beat, I don't know how to help you. Galatians chapter 3 says that when Jesus got on the cross of Calvary, he redeemed us from, quote, the curse of the law. How did he do it? He became a curse for us as it is written Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, Galatians 3.14, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might fall, might come to the Gentiles, the strangers, the people who didn't belong in the camp, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Do you see this? The sacrifices were made on the mountain of the curse Jesus became a curse for you. He took your curse so that you could have God's blessing. You have no other hope. But in him, the promise of the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles. You get the spirit through faith. Don't go cut the stones. Don't go make God a pretty altar and tell him 10 reasons he should like you more because you're better than the next guy. Go get yourself under the shadow of the cross of Christ and tell him, That's the sacrifice that I have all my hope in for you to accept me on favorable terms. Well, the applications could be multitude, but singular for today. God's word. Do you see God's word dominating the worship service? Joshua does everything he does according to the word. He literally writes out the word, makes a sacrifice according to the word. He reads the law in front of all the people. They're amening it left and right. God's word dominates when God's people gather in worship. So our application is, Lord help this church. The role of his word in our worship gatherings, more than Israel needed anything else, they needed God's word and they needed the God of the word. You notice it was all God's people Some people asked us, why do you guys have all the kids in your worship service? Well, one is they've always outnumbered us Uh, we got nowhere else to stick them, but we don't want to get rid of them. Do you see all the kids in this passage? The women, the children, the strangers, the sojourners, the aliens, the elders, the Levites, the priests, do you see all these people? And every one of them, hearing God's word dominate their congregational gathering, we need God's word, but we also need Not only his word for all of his people, we need all of his word. Don't forget, they didn't just read the blessings. They didn't read the comfortable, happy parts. 
They wanted all of it. Because God's word is an extension of God's character. At Grace Church, we don't have much to offer, but one thing we're committed to, so help us God, here we stand, we can do no other, is to try to immerse our life deeper and deeper and deeper into his word. We literally say our mission is to grow together in biblical maturity. Everybody constantly being changed by looking at Christ in the word. So whether it's preaching scriptures or in our small groups and studying books of the Bible like we're going to do, Lord willing, here in January again, the book of Psalms, whether it's our men's and women's fellowships like we just had a few weeks ago or rooted classes or grace kids or tasting the truth catechism, his word, it's all we've got. If we don't understand the need for all of God's word and we only go to the parts that are kind of the feel-good, happy, pick-me-up parts, we're going to miss the most important aspect of all, who is the God of this word? We need to look soberly at his justice and his wrath and his anger. We need to hear his curses that are an extension of his character because he is holy, three times holy, and will not compromise his character to condone our sin. But if we don't look at his justice and we don't look at his wrath, we don't look at his anger, we don't look at his curses, we'll never understand the cross. If you think that God is all mushy-gushy because God is love, then I just commend a good, long, prayer-filled look at his bloody son. He does love that much and he does abhor sin that much. He gave heaven's favorite to be the sacrifice that alone would satiate his wrath and provide a fountain of forgiveness for all who will plunge themselves in his mighty atoning blood. If you want his blessing, you gotta go to the one who purchased all the promises with his blood. So I keep saying close, close, close. Those of you who know me well know there's a few of those. This is the last one. We need God's word in our congregational setting. We need all of God's word for all of God's people. That's what I see here. I just wanna give a practical word to us personally. There's different ways to approach the Bible. The more mature we become in our faith, the more mature we will be handling God's word. It's actually the first, the second then the first. The more mature we handle his word, the more mature we'll become in our faith. There's at least three ways for you to read your Bible. You can read your Bible devotionally, you can study it, and you can read it in leisure. Devotional study and leisure. Spurgeon says some people like to read so many Bible chapters every day. I would not dissuade anybody from that practice, but I would rather, Spurgeon said, lay my soul a soak in half a dozen verses all day than rinse my hand in several chapters. Oh, to be bathed in a text of scripture and to let it be sucked up into my very soul till it saturates all of my heart. That's devotional. Praying through scripture, not getting into it, letting it get into you. Memorization, meditation, chewing on it, cogitation, going deep with God in the verses of his word. There's also study. If you're looking for a passage of scripture to study, maybe begin with the beauty and power of God's word. Psalm 119, all those verses devoted to the magnanimity of God's word. Psalm 119, which was prayed for us earlier. Matthew 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but all God's word. Study his word. Study God's word says to show yourself approved to God as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed accurately handling his word. Then finally, Leisure reading, kids, there is no more fascinating book in the universe than the Bible. The stories are absolutely gripping. Read God's word, read through the Bible in a year programs, all that kind of stuff would fit under leisure. The day our church met outside last month, I loved it, but the one thing I regretted was because we were gonna be preaching two chapters of Joshua, I asked six or eight kids in the church to read those two chapters into a recording. A couple of our deacons took all those kids' readings, spliced it together, and we were going to project the chapters as we listened to the kids read the word. 
Kids, I want to encourage you to be reading the Bible every single day. Encourage your friends to read the Bible every day. The prophet Isaiah said, what do we do when we live a bunch of... A, we live among a bunch of pagan people that believe all kind of crazy cuckoo stuff, what do we do? Isaiah chapter 8, to the law and to the testimony. You go to God's word. It'll give you a true north. It'll stabilize you like a ship in the shaking waves of the sea. Well, this church has nothing to offer except for Christ Jesus according to his word. And may the Lord make us a people whose lives and a whole church are shaped by God's word, being changed by God through his word because all scripture is inspired by God. It's all profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. May God's word change us into the image of God's son until we see him face to face. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for what happened in Joshua chapter 8 when people took a break from war to do something far more significant, to worship, that they would be reminded that you are God and they are not, that they need you, not the other way around, and that the only victory that's ever going to happen is in obedience to who you are. Lord, we thank you that there is one who in every way perfectly obeyed your law. One who didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. The one who you say is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Thank you for Jesus, the true word, and that he took his life of perfect obedience to you and gave himself as the sacrifice for our sin so that we could be counted righteous in your sight. Help us to grow, yes, in knowledge of your word. But Lord, I ask one of the members and one of the pastors of this church, please save us from being Bible know-it-alls. Don't let us learn more about it so we can be more puffed up in our pride. No, Lord, humble us. Cause us to tremble at your word. Change us. Make us more and more fascinated by Christ the more we grow deep in your word. Cause us to admire him more, follow him more, obey him more, point others to him more as we get more and more saturated in your word. Dominate this church with your word. Dominate us, Lord. Don't let us live our way according to our thoughts. Cause us to live your way according to your thoughts. And we pray this for your glory in Jesus' name, amen.